Welcome to Rattling the Stars. My name is Tammy Tucky, and welcome to my channel and this special podcast interview series. Back in 1999, NBC moved forward with one of the last big television film events that was watched by over 25.34 million viewers when it aired on February 28, 1999, and I was among one of them. A three-hour adaptation of Lewis Carroll's beloved story, Alice in Wonderland. 2019 marks the film's 20-year anniversary, and who better to celebrate this exciting occasion than the director of the film himself, Nick Willing. Welcome to the show, Nick. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to have you because I, there's so many questions I have about this film, and there's really not a lot of information out about it, but the way we got in touch was because I found the documentary that a fan had posted. They had copied it from TV um, that Hallmark had produced, and it was just fascinating, and I sent it to you, and I sent it to Richard Hartley, who I had interviewed in December, the, com the film's composer, and uh, he, he was thrilled to see it, and you're, you were in the documentary, so it was so cool to see, you know, you at work with the actors and talking about the film itself. So what were your, what was like your initial reaction when you saw that? <laughs> I looked like a child. <laughs> can't believe how young I was when I made that film. It was my second movie. What? I made, yes, I had made a film before that that came out in 1997 called Photographing Fairies. That came out on in London, uh, and it was watched by the the producer of Alice in Wonderland, Dyson Lovell, who who then asked. They were actually thinking about hiring a director called Terry Gilliam to make the film because he was a very popular fantasy director at the time. But then after he saw photographing fairies, he thought, "Oh well, maybe I could do it." So I went along and had a meeting. So I was then very, very young. I don't remember quite. I think I was 12. No, I was a little bit older than that, but not much older. So what was that meeting? Like, what was the conversation about it? How you guys were to bring it to the screen and make it a little bit different? Because I remember um, we had a VHS tape copy of the 1985 CBS show about Alice in Wonderland that also had kind of like an all-star cast with it, you know, Red Buttons, Carol Channing, Roddy McDowell, Anthony Newley. So are, was that a conversation you guys kind of had as to how to bring the story to life, but also really bring it to a new century, basically? Well, the, 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 the biggest challenge with that book is actually that it isn't a story. The irony of Alice in Wonderland is that it is one of the most difficult films to make because it isn't a story. It doesn't have a beginning, middle and end. It doesn't observe a story structure, the kind of story structure that, that works best in movies. So we were all very aware of that. And, the, and I think our first discussions about the, the script was how can we make this uh, as stay faithful to the book, uh, and yet and try and yet inject some sort of through line that carries the audience from from scene to scene. The book uh, that Charles Dodson wrote, or Lewis Carroll as we know him, is um, a series of set pieces. You know, it was a he would make up a poem to tell 
Alice, his his the, his muse, um, when they were out on a summer's day and so on, or at a picnic, and the book was a compilation of all those disparate anecdotal stories or poems. So it isn't about a, a heroine that goes through with a particular goal in mind. And it is for that reason that it works so well as a book and why it was then uh, taken up by movements like the surrealist movement, because it is a kind of surrealist uh, book. So my challenge was how do we, you know, keep put, uh, and what we came up with, with Peter Barnes, the, the screenwriter was called Peter Barnes, and he was a very famous writer. Peter Barnes had written a lot of big, huge plays and was massively considered. Um, and what we came up with was, was to try and find the common theme in each of the little vignettes. And the common theme in each of the little vignettes was that Alice has to, in one way or another, is, is, is asked to sing or tell a, say a poem or whatever, which is she's asked to perform. So we constructed this, these bookends for the film where she is forced to, she's ha having to perform in front of a big crowd and she runs away because she doesn't want to do that. And then we can go into the book as it were, as it is written. And in each of those scenarios, we see that she is one way or another having to figure out how she's going to cope with that fear so that at the end she can perform it. And at the end, of course, all the people she has to perform to are the characters we've seen in the film. So that was the, the kind of little, you know, idea that we came up with. And I, and I think that really sets it apart, your film, from the other ones, because it, it they play in part to the fact that Alice is bored with her everyday life. But this version of Alice is nervous and unhappy about performing. And I think a lot of children, and I think adults too, can attest to the fact that, yeah, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's nerve wracking to give a presentation at school or at a meeting. So there's like that connection that you can automatically have with her as a character. And sometimes I guess, you know, they can create cat, you know, Alice is a little bit flighty or just, you know, very oblivious to what's going on. And that's okay, too, of course. But it was so interesting to see how she had this thought process and really thought out the um, reactions and actions she could take regarding, you know, her path on this journey. And so I always thought that that was so interesting to have such a strong, intelligent heroine who was so young at 13 years old and Tina brought such a, an interesting take to it. So how many people did you audition for that role before finding Tina? Oh God, hundreds, really hundreds and hundreds. And of course we're in England. We were in England then, obviously, and we were making the film in England and Alice is an English character. So we looked at hundreds of English, young English actresses you know I must have auditioned I don't know two three hundred girls and we had these open call sessions you know where people anyone could walk in and and have a go and uh, it was grueling you know doing those things because it, it's hard because you see the expectations of these young actors 
And um, but in the end, <clears throat> I'd seen her in a film in Waterworld, I think it was. But I'd seen her in something else, and 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 she came out of the American casting. There were several tapes collected. Lynn Kressel, I think, was our casting director, who's a very well-known American casting director. We had one here in England and one in America, and Lynn Kressel did the American casting, and she sent her us her. And everybody loved her. And I liked her because she was a little bit unusual in her approach. She wasn't a classic um, Alice. And yet what she what she was was a, a strong personality. And I think it was Jonathan Miller who actually made the best, I think, the best version of Alice of all time was made by a, an English director called Alice, uh, called Jonathan Miller in the 60s, I think it was, or the early 70s. And he said that uh, Alice was practically the only female character in Victorian literature who isn't either mad <laughs> or set up. Of course, it's not true, but you, there are plenty of them. But you, you get a sense that she's the one, more or less, the only sane character in that story, isn't she? And... Um, and so I, uh, I, I like the fact that she could be a very contrasting figure against all these madcap other characters. And one of the things about, by the way, which is very important, is that uh, Alison, the way that people, we've always done that story of Alison's Wonderland in movies is because we're aware that it, there isn't a strong story that carries you through from beginning to end, that these are a series of, you know... Uh, vignettes, basically. Vignettes. Yeah, that, that are all for spectacle and show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we then... The, 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 what, we, what we... To keep the audience audience's attention, and particularly the adult audience's attention, we always cast big, huge, famous movie or TV stars. So yes. in each vignette, you go, oh, I wonder who's going to come up next. No, look, it's Martin Short. Oh, and who's coming up? It's, you know, Christopher Lloyd or whoever it is. So, um, and that's, uh, so, and so she, as a, as a young girl, was a very strong contrast to all those big, crazy, big personalities that you see throughout the film. And that's daunting because you have this, correct me if I'm wrong, $21 million film in production that is basically on this girl's shoulders, at least for the performance of it. Because if we can't believe her, we can't believe what else is going around her because she is our rock. She is our, our direction for that film. So what, when you were filming with her, was she ever, do you, you ever, she ever came off as nervous or unsure? Not re I, the, I remember that the, the, the difficulty, if we had any difficulties, was that it was a very big special effects, visual effects movie. So there were many situations where Tina was having to perform in a green stage um, in front of a camera uh, without the person she was performing to actually there because we would have to shoot them separately on another stage, you see. And um, so there was this, this uh, challenge of having to 
get used to the mechanics of making a visual effects movie for a for a young girl who who you know doesn't of course hasn't had that much experience in that kind of movie or had none up till then had a little bit on Waterworld but mostly on Waterworld she was on that boat in the middle of the ocean with Kevin Costner and um, and so it was a real situation these most of our scenes were constructed without much there. So that was, I remember having to explain to her, okay, you look over here at this cross on the wall, but actually that cross on the wall is Martin Short. We're going to shoot tomorrow and he's going to be standing on a table over there, you know, that sort of thing. I remember inventing a word, which I still use all the time um, for the gizmo, as it were, for, I'd say, this is the gashpini. This Gashpini, and the Gashpini was any kind of weird mechanical or visual effects system that was too complicated to explain. <laughs> and so we got used to, we made fun of it, and we used to have a, a great time. We laughed a lot. I mean, one of the things I love doing when I'm making a movie is having a good time with the crew and the actors. And so there was a lot of laughter and that makes everyone relax a little bit, particularly with a big show, which has a lot of money involved, huge amount of uh, investment in it and lots of big stars. It's easy to get nervous. And the best way to cope with that is to have a bit of fun and to play like you were kids. And that's what I, that's the kind of atmosphere I used to create on set is, you know, we're all kids having a laugh and that helped calm the nerves. And, and I love that you mentioned the visual effects because I think this is one of those things where today everything is usually a digital visual effect. And pretty much, I know you had a lot of green screen, but there was a lot of uh, man work done into these things, the props, the costumes, and most notably, I would say the puppets for the film by the Jim Henson Company. So w when were they brought on board? Because Richard said that his introduction to the film was actually getting to see the puppets ahead of time before working on the, the music, just to see what you guys had been working on at that time. I think he said it was like around 97. Was that around the time you guys started and and, and yeah, got in touch with them? Yeah, 97 was when I started because we... Uh, but night we made the film in '98. It came out in '99. Um, but I had a long prep period, you know, several months working, and we had offices at Jim Henson's Creature Shop. That's where our production office was, and I had my own director's office was at the Creature Shop. We had a, a sort of, um, you know, a, a, a partnership with them. And one of the things you see that it was interesting because. Puppets and Muppets were already um, unpopular at that stage. They weren't being used much. Visual effects and 3D animation was coming in big time. And so that it was considered of. But what I felt, because I'd already worked with the Creature Shop many times before in the past in my other work, TV work and stuff. And films, they they helped me with various other films that I'd made. Um, what I thought was that the the puppets gave it a more Victorian feeling. See, one of my kind of touchstones when I made this film is that I wanted the look of the effects to look as if 
they could have been done in Victorian times. I know it's a difficult thing to get your head round, but because we're setting this film in Victorian times, you need the kind of effects language of that period, which was puppetry and theater effects and all that sort of stuff. So at one point we even create for the walrus and the carpenter a stage, you know, and we do a little Victorian theater in which the, the Tweedledee and Tweedledum are operating. And on stage uh, is Peter Ustinov and Pete Postlethwaite, two huge actors, being manipulated by two literally much huger, gigantic characters in the shape of Robbie Coltrane and George Went as Tweedledee and Tweedledum. So you have this look, and that is the kind of... Um, design and, and visual effects look of Victorian England. So I wanted to use puppets and theatre magic of that period and design it in such a way that it looks as if, oh, if you had a very, very, you know, had had the film in, in Victorian times, you might have been able to make this film. That was my kind of idea. And I thought that was important because it gave the film a kind of Victorian authenticity. And it came in a period feeling, even though it was a lot of visual effects. Oh, well, absolutely, because we were, I, I remember just feeling so transported. It was so unusual in 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 the design and and, and vi visually, because it was something like I had never seen as a kid before. And it was just so beautiful to watch it. I know that you used a lot of uh, Sir John Tenniel's illustrations as inspiration because obviously the one that a lot of people know is the image of the Mad Hatter and Alice. It's, it's just so amazing how you can take people into a world and be transported. And it was like, it was basically a three hour film, right? You, you guys shot a lot of material and it was, it was a big film event. It was at the time, NBC at the time, I remember when it came out, I went to LA when it was released and it was on, they put it on over one night. Uh, it was a three hour and in um, LA, it started quite late. I remember that it started because you know how it works. Well, obviously, you know how it works in America. You know, when it, if, if, if it's going out Eastern and Pacific and time and, you know, Eastern time at the same time, obviously, by in LA it starts at nine it was finishing at 11 at night you know um and um I and I remember thinking that was a bit late for kids to stay up and that the but what it was extraordinary was that they got 27 million viewers which nowadays is unheard of to get that many viewers on a film or I mean things are a little bit different now but um, it was on, you know, it was just not the kind of, it's not the kind of figure that you get on a, on a, a, t a TV show. But it was, it was, uh, it was one of those event things that went out. One of the things that did bug me, I have to say, was that it was a three hour film, but our film was actually only two hours and 15 minutes because NBC put in so many commercials throughout the film that it became hard to watch you know it's just a, a part of the way it works in 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 commercial television 
But um, so that was the challenge also. I remember them saying to me, oh, you know, you've got to do this. This scene has to be end on a cliffhanger so that, that people come back, you know, after the commercial break. Um, and also the, the film is a bit of an amalgam with Looking Glass. There's a bit of Looking Glass. Yes. Yes. I, I did want to mention that, too. That's a good point that you're bringing up. Um, and, and also, I think Richard mentioned that uh, Miranda was supposed to have a song, Miranda Richardson, as the queen. But her performance is just so well played that she does not need a song, is what he said. And I, I couldn't have agreed with him more on that, even though I think she has a beautiful voice, too. And Christopher Lloyd had a song, and th- that was cut. Um, he said it was cut around the time that they were on set or something like that. Do you well, recall that, this? That was the two minutes we put back in, actually. Really? Okay, I have yeah. to I have to pick up my DVD. I don't know why I didn't think that. Maybe I really well, thought that that was in there <laughs> originally. I don't, know, I don't know how, but I remember doing an edit with and without Chris Christopher doing his song. He had a song, um, which is actually in the book, I think. Yeah, the, where the White Knight sings a song, and we had filmed him by a waterfall. And um, we'd gone out and shot in this beautiful place, and and it was he's he's it's incredibly sad song, and the whole point of the song is that he's crying, the horse is crying, the water lilies start crying, the 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 waterfall itself is crying tears, you know everything's because this is a very very sad song, but it's it's nonsense. The song itself. Is nonsense. So the joke of the song, of the of the scene, is how the White Knight is apoplectically, desperately depressed and sad about this nonsensical song. <laughs> it was quite funny, and Christopher believed that you had to do it. Well, we both did. I mean, one of the, by the way, one of my touchstones in shooting comedy and and this is sort of a comedy i mean you know kind of a comedy is that you have to really believe in your character you can't be pretending to be it you have to in completely live and believe in what that character believes completely and feel the way that character feels because if you in any way show to the audience that you're um, not taking it seriously, then they won't take it seriously either. So you have, it's what I call full commitment to your character. And um, we see actually in a lot of films, particularly modern films, how characters don't, often actors don't do that because they feel embarrassed and they thought they think they have to ham it up a little bit in order to make it funny. Well, that's the opposite of what will make it funny because if the audience don't believe you, if you don't believe in yourself, in your own character, that your, your audience won't believe in it either. And so Christopher really embraced this character, of the White Knight in the song. And in the end, it was so long and, and so sad. People, and it was quite late on in the film that uh, I was asked to cut it out. You know, another prominent thing is, as Americans, we were introduced to cast members who are very well known in the UK. 
and I guess vice versa. You know what I mean? Uh, the UK was introduced to our American cast, so you've got a you've got a beautiful marriage of the two. You can't tell the difference, obviously, but everybody works so well with one another. Like that courtroom scene at the very end is just so. The timing is unbelievable because every time I watch it, I just am so. I, I, I can't stop laughing, first of all. Second of all, it's just so well-written that y- y- you can't look away. You know what I mean? And it's just, the timing is so perfect, and, and it's everybody. And I think that that's, like, the best part of the film is when you have everybody you've seen, almost everybody from the film, all together in the same room. All these personalities mis- mismatch. You know, like, not, like, they just mesh so well together. It's It's one of those things that really stood out in the film to me when we get to the very end. And that's like the bet that's like the most um important piece for Alice. Um when all of that comes together because it makes sense. It clicks for her. So the way you played it and the way you directed it was just beautifully done. <laughs> well thank you. I I think the um the courtroom we did build a set. That set really existed, as you can see in the making of. And that was we shot in there for a week. It was so hot because it was the baking English summer of 98. It was 98. It was, the, it was June and it was one of the heat waves. And we hired these giant air conditioning units because everybody's in their makeup and it's all dripping, you know. And people are in these heads, you know, like the Mad March Hare is wearing this costume and he can't breathe. And he's boiling. People are fainting everywhere. The, the puppeteers that are operating the little, the guinea pigs, you know, the, 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 the jurors underneath the stage, they're all fainting. You know, I, it was just the most uh, difficult scene to, to shoot, I have to say. And because everybody's so far away, you know, Miranda and Simon, Simon Russell Beale was the king, were up on high, high, high up. They really were in this... And they were cut off from everybody. We used to have to winch them up glasses of water. and um, It was difficult to communicate with everybody and get the timing of the jokes and everything correct. That was, I remember thinking, oh, this, it was a real kind of technical riddle. And the thing about comedy is it has to be felt, you know, it has to be spontaneous. So it was, it was a real challenge to make it feel spontaneous when... It took so long. Everybody was so hot. People were fainting. They couldn't breathe. It was a really hard scene to do that scene. But I remember thinking when I walked into that set that was made, designed and built by Roger Hall, Sir Roger Hall, as we called him, um, is uh, I remember thinking, wow, this is the movies. I wish there was more behind the scenes footage that they might release at some point in time, you know, for the 20th anniversary, because it would just be so interesting to hear even more from the cast. I loved hearing from Martin and Miranda and Tina and it just to see them in that time and place in their lives. I can only imagine what they would say if they saw it themselves. <laughs> I know. I I um. I mean, you know, it was the production company was called RHI, which was the company of of Robert Halmy Senior, who was he died sadly two three years ago. I was making a film with him uh, when he died, and I worked with him for twenty years. You know, he's a very was very close. We worked, we did a lot of work together, 
And, um, and then his company was bought by another company and then another company bought that company and then that gets syndicated and farmed off to somebody else and then people pick up the pieces and they buy some of the things and some and the tapes go missing and they're in some vault and then that vault gets destroyed. These, this is how it happens, you know, it's very sad. But I, I, I don't know that we'll ever find those rushes. I do actually think I remember who made the making of. So I might actually give him a, see if I can find him. It was a guy called Brian Fear. That would be, uh, that would be great. I know you, you feature some behind the scenes photos on your specific website, which is what I used for Richard's interview. And of course I cited you as well because it was, it, again, I had never seen anything like that before. You know, how you guys were framing the shots, these professionally done photos of the beautiful makeup and the costumes because you guys won four Emmy Awards for costume design, makeup, music composition, and visual effects, rightly so. So, you know, it, it, it playing in part to it. And I'm sure with all of the people who have seen it, it in that time, it's still something like if you were to bring it up, I'm sure people would know what it, you know, what it is. And so when I found that a lot of people I knew online knew about it, I was like, thank goodness, because it's my favorite version. And it's just so interesting to see all, all of the hard work you guys put into that. My gosh, it's just a monster of something that you that you probably will never see again, you know, at least for you know, TV. Well, it was, the, it was the old days, as we call it now. In the yeah. old days, we did things properly. I mean, I not say people don't do things properly now, but, but by properly, what I mean is that we would have, I had, I think, four months uh, in a studio, in a workshop with five conceptual artists. Dermot Power, who designed a little film called Harry Potter. Rob Bliss. These were conceptual artists who are now sort of famous, famous, famous because they've made so many amazing films. But, um, and that what we would do is I'd go in every day and sit there and go, well, what if, I tell you what, why don't we look, make it look like this? And we would be applying some of the, my theories, which is let's try and make this, use all the kind of visual trickery of Victorian vaudeville theatre. You know, they had a lot of smoke and mirrors in those days. Yeah, absolutely. And apply that to the film and can we design it in a... And so we, they would be churning out designs and so a lot of them are on my website, but th those are the things that I kept. And meanwhile, in Elstree, uh, not Elstree, Shepperton Film Studios, which is where we shot the film, there was a whole building of artists working for Roger Hall designing sets. Wow. And so we would send our conceptual designs down to him and then he would use those to design the sets. And and I love that you, you mentioned a lot of the people who worked on the film who are no longer with us, of course. Uh, Gene Wilder. Um, oh, Gene Wilder was so wonderful. I cannot tell you how wonderful that man was. Tell, yeah, please tell me about working oh, on set with him, please. I that was, would be great. <laughs> I was his, it was, for me, I couldn't believe that I was working with my hero because I, the, the producers, was a, which was him and Zero Mostel, was a film made by um, Mel Brooks. And that film, for me, was the, one of the greatest films ever made. 
And Gene Wilder was a guy I completely thought was the greatest actor, comedy actor I'd ever seen. You know, he did Young Frankenstein for Mel Brooks as well. He was in Blazing Saddle. I mean, this was the greatest comedic actor I'd, I could imagine. And suddenly he's going to come over and play one of the parts. I couldn't believe it. it was just. And he rang me up and said, Nick. And I gave him my, my, he had my phone number, you know. And he rang me every day. Oh, I've just got to this bit in the script. <laughs> He'd asked me these questions about his dialogue. He was the sweetest, most generous, kindest person you could work with. And he took it incredibly seriously. He was very professional. And he said originally he wanted to play a more comedic role. You know, the mock turtle isn't funny, really. The mock turtle is a sympathetic character, a very sad character. Um, but he's not really funny. And he said, oh, can't you put me in one of the funniest roles? And unfortunately, we were already through filming the, the movie. You know, it took God knows how many. I think it was 15 weeks we shot that film in. Something ludicrous. It was a very long shoot. And um, and and I said, well, the thing about and the, this part is that you're the, you've got the biggest heart of anybody I know in Hollywood, which is why I want you to play that role. And and he came with that big heart, you know, and um, and we would sit off set chatting, waiting for the next setup for hours, him telling stories. Can you imagine that what that's like telling stories of how he'd shot young Frankenstein and Mel Brooks and making the producers? I mean, it was like a dream come true for me. But he died. I mean, there are a lot of them. Donald Sinden, who plays the uh, Griffin. He's so funny. <laughs> yes, he is. I was like, they were. So he was he on set with Gene, at least doing the the, yes. the 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 voices, like the actual dialogue with him. Yes, I did it because I wanted them to be able to react with each other. It's not the way you would normally do it. Correct. Yeah, but I had him off set with a microphone. Um, Gene had an earpiece so that he could hear Donald and so could the puppeteers. So the puppeteers would be puppeteering away to Donald's voice. You get Gene Wilder to sing two songs in your film. It's like, it's just amazing. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. We were supposed to cut one of them because it was too, too many. One too many. And um, Oh, no. But, well, because, you know, this is how it... But then it, it was so magical. He did it in such a magical way that it was impossible to cut it. I'm so glad you did not cut it. You yes. know, and it's <laughs> beautiful soup. Oh, it's such a lovely moment. It wouldn't make sense if you didn't have both songs at all. So, and, and the, put, the meaning behind the, them. It does put pressure on, the, on Christopher Lloyd, who comes up after that sequence. Mm -hmm. Then singing a very long song. That was one of the pressures on, you know, we had, I think that people felt that they had to lose his song, which was much longer. And um, so we had to cut that out very sadly. But it did make its way back to another version. I don't know where we get that version. And and also, I, I would like to mention that um, Whoopi Goldberg plays the Cheshire Cat. And I think it's like such an unusual selection for somebody to play that role. But it works so well. But she she never was on set. She had to do all of hers on green screen slash blue screen. And how, how did that audition process work for the Cheshire Cat? And 
finally well, come to her? We, I had wanted her from the beginning because when they asked me who would you cast as the Cheshire Cat, I said, well, I, we have to have the most famous smile in Hollywood because, you know, the grin of the Cheshire Cat's grin is the most famous smile in literature. So I, I was looking for the most famous, one of the most famous smile in Hollywood, which of course was Whoopi Goldberg. She has the most amazing smile, you know, that big, big smile. And, um, but it was, we had to wait because, oh, she wouldn't do it. Also, she, the problem was she wouldn't fly. I don't know if you know, I don't know if she does anymore, but certainly at that time she would, wouldn't fly because uh, I don't fear of flying or there was something going on. Like, uh, so she wouldn't come over to England and shoot it to London. So we had to go to New York to shoot that sequence. At the end of when we finished filming, I had to shoot all the shots which she would feature in, including her body. So um, Tina would perform with the puppet body made of the Cheshire Cat made by the Henson organization, which were manipulating and talking and she would talk back. And then we took those shots, cut together, and we had shoot Whoopi's head. She was wearing a blue suit against a blue background, and but her head was the only part of her that was Whoopi. And um, then we put that head on top of the puppet that we had shot earlier. So it was quite a trick. And we brought Tina with us, of course, so that she could perform with Tina, even though we had already shot Tina. But obviously we wanted her to react to the real actor, you know, Whoopi. Whoopi was fantastic. I think we shot her for only three days to do all those sequences. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty... It was quite well, it seemed there was a lot of you know setup time and stuff for each of the shots, but it was um, yes, that was in New York. I can't remember in some studio in New York. It makes you want to become a part of the film industry, to be quite honest. When you look at that film as a whole, because so many elements have to work to make the film work, and they do. Yeah. They everybody brought their A game. <laughs> You know, yeah. and they were all for it. And I, I, I do also want to mention. I do love Miranda and Simon's banter as the king and queen. It's just so because I think like sometimes the king is just put off to the side as a as a small role as really nothing prominent. And with them working off of one another, it's like this is the perfect couple for Wonderland. <laughs> He, he's fantastic, Simon Russell. He's a humongously famous uh, theatre actor, and um, here and they had been they were good friends already, and he he actually helped her a lot, Simon, because she was con she was like conflicted about how to get comedy out of the character, get the the, the juice out of the char character. And we had quite a lot of, of intense rehearsals where we tried lots of different methods of, of doing that. And he was particularly helpful, I remember. Did you, did you get to keep any costumes or, or props from the set or anything? Well, they anything? kept all the... I've got some props, but um, that I kept a few things, you know, back. 
um, I have a sort of little personal collection of items, which I, I have at home, including the clapperboard, you know, and things like that. But um, uh, the costumes were all stored away, and they became, I think they were, I remember them being shown in a museum somewhere at one point. Have there been any discussions about a, an official reunion with the cast and with you and with the crew? No, because there isn't anybody there anymore. You know, it used to be Robert Halmy Sr. died, very sadly, mm-hmm. and his company got bought up. So there isn't anybody who is, there's no company that, somebody must own the film, obviously, but um, I don't know who that is anymore. And um, it's, it, you know, so there isn't any kind of, effort to make to do anything like that which is a shame but since it is the 20th anniversary of the film what do you think about its overall legacy and the people who who remember growing up with the film and uh and think of it so highly well i'm i'm i I mean one one of the things i had hoped that would happen is that it would draw people back to the book and to read and to read more as children as kids that's the big thing that, that, that films like this can sometimes encourage. You know, most films now pull us away from literature and kids get, you know, but I'm hoping that, and it did, it was borne out after the film was released, the sales in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland rose sharply for several years. And that's a sign that people are, are engaging with his work and buying the book and reading. And the, and the most important thing is that we get kids reading and enjoying the, the nonsensical rhymes on the page and playing with them and thinking about them and using their imagination. Because when kids start developing that muscle of imagination that mostly actually comes from reading rather than watching movies, then they develop their personality and they develop their creativity. And that's what makes it possible for them to do anything then, you know, go into the arts, become whatever they want to become in the arts. Um, but you, it, it all begins really from reading, interestingly, and, and staring at those illustrations. So that's what I'm hoping, if there is a legacy, it's that it, it will encourage more kids to pick up that book are you working on anything now that we can look forward to seeing sometime soon? Well, you know, now I've been, lately I've been making feature documentaries. And for me, uh, it's become more interesting making, I've written so many fantasy films and made so many fantasy films that I've actually enjoyed lately making films about real stories and real people. So I've made two recent feature documentaries. I'm about to start another one for the BBC. Um, these humongous films that we used to do for television are incredibly difficult to make and very stressful. And I've made so much, so many of them over so many years, you know. I started in 97. It's been 25 years of making these gigantic films. I've had to... Uh, Take it a little bit easier. So, um, so now I'm 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 really enjoying making factual films. But I will be uh, starting to write. I'm thinking of writing uh, another fantasy movie 
next year on a I can't tell you what it's about because I'd have to kill you but um it's because <laughs> it, it's top top secret but uh it is a very very famous character that we all know but in a situation which you've never seen her in well, if you need somebody to play that character, <laughs> this 23-year-old will be happy to do it. <laughs> a little bit younger than that, but anyway. So Darn. <laughs> well, no, seriously, I'll even play a brick wall in that film. Please let me know, because that would be even just a joy and an honor to work with such a legend and a person that I have admired your work for so many years. And it's just such... Uh, th thank you very much for doing this because you know this little three-year-old had so four-year-old had so many questions at the time when she saw the film so to finally be able to to talk to you about it um is just an honor so thank you i really appreciate it <laughs> thank you so much Tammy.